Welcome back to our Weird History episode, where we seek to bring you tales of the strange and unusual throughout history. Do tell. What's the topic this week? Uh, let's see. Uh, today we are going to talk about a very important woman and the history of New York City. Ooh. Who's that? Well, um, let's see. This is say, going back to Wilhelmina Fleming. Ooh. And for those who haven't listened to the episode, I highly recommend listening to it because it's incredibly fascinating. But if you remember, so she was a Scottish maid, started off as a maid, and became a highly respected female astronomer in the late 1800s and feel obviously dominated by men. Very similar story, uh, except this is about Isabella Goodwin, whose name probably also won't sound very familiar to most people. But it should. So Isabella Goodwin, uh, she was born Isabel Logry in Greenwich Village in New York on February 20th, 1865. And as a child, apparently she had ambitions to grow up and be an opera singer. I don't know if she had any training, but she did not become an opera singer. Fancy schmancy idea, though. I like opera. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a good ambition. Now, at the age of 19, she married a man named John Goodwin, who was a policeman, and they were married for 11 years before he died. Now, I don't know if he died, say, from illness or died while on duty. Couldn't find that information. But at the time that he died, she was 30, and she had to find a way to come up with some income to support their four children. That's a lot of kids. Not for that time. That's a lot of kids, in my opinion. <laughs> well, she had six, four only made it to adulthood. So I suppose six is quite a, a handful, yeah. Now, at the age of 30, and this being the eighteen mid-1890s, there wasn't probably a lot of skillful employment that was open to her. I don't, there's not a lot known about her, her childhood, or her life while she was married. Most of what we know about her was the bit coming up. I don't know how much education she would have received. I don't know if she had any sort of trade skills that she could have used, especially at 30, if you were, say, a stay-at-home mom like most women were. And then all of a sudden, you have to be the person bringing in the income. It could probably be pretty hard for her to find a, a decent-paying job in order to raise your four children. So she had to make a decision and she made a very big decision that she would follow in her late husband's footsteps and join the NYPD. She, so you're saying she joined the NYPD? Yeah. And that, ooh. Now, nice. before we get to the ooh, it wasn't unusual in the 1890s for the NYPD to hire wives of their fallen officers. However, they weren't hired as police officers, if that's what you're thinking. Even though that she was the wife of a likely fallen officer, she wasn't just hired on. She had to study and pass a civil service exam. And in May of 1896, she was officially hired on as a police matron. Now, a police matron at the time were not police women. 
they were matrons, as in they their jobs were to work at female jails and oversee the female inmates and clean the cells and make everything look nice. So it's still doing scullery work, in a sense. Just a start for her. That's just like a beginning position. Yeah, but she would do it for quite a while. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, it paid well enough, but nowhere near the amount of salary that men would get. And I'll get into that later. Most of the time that she would, um, during most of her tenure as a police matron, she would be at the Manhattan House of Detention, which was also known as the Tombs. That tells you how bad it probably was. That's sad. It was. It's not uncommon for, for really awful jails to have names like the Tombs, or um, that you know that sometimes they'll have solitary places in some of the jails. I think in Oregon once they had one for I can't remember his name. Carl Tanzler is coming to mind. It's not Carl Tanzler. Um, Carl Panzerin, I think it was. There was a jail. I think it was in Oregon. He was in, and there was a solitary pit. And it was called the pit or hell's pit. And that was a very common thing for a lot of jails to have a solitary pit. So calling it the tombs was not necessarily uncommon. Apparently during her time as a matron, she made at the time about a thousand dollars a year. Which would be about the equivalent of just over $35,000 a year today. Which I think is still more than a lot of people make per year in today's money although i will say working for the police department that's on the low end even back then that's on the low end of being able to work for the police department and according to one of my sources it also stated that she would only receive one day off a year or sorry one day off per month so she was working 29 30 days with one day off that sounds terrible so she works seven days a week? Most of the time, a- probably, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But seven days a week for weeks straight. Yeah, I know. I can't stand the idea of going in on the weekend to my job. I, no, I, I- I'd imagine she probably had two weeks on, one day off, two weeks on, one day off, something like that. That sounds awful. Well, yeah. I, I, I mean, mean, like going into work five days in a row. I'm okay. I survive it. I don't like it. Yeah, I mean, four four days is fine. Five days is, depending on the job, five is a lot. I just recently came off of working at my job seven weeks straight, and that was an unintentional schedule issue. <laughs> that was, no, that was really hard. I don't normally work seven days straight. <laughs> but I don't know how common that was in terms of police work at that time. Because now there weren't any, there weren't a lot of unions. There weren't a lot of health and safety. It's the 1890s, even into the, the, okay, even into the 1920s. A lot of places weren't unionized. There wasn't a lot of health and safety. People were working 14 to 18 hours a day, depending on where you were working, seven days a week, you know, it was, or at least six days a week. It, it was really hard back then. No matter how much labor force you had, everyone was working 
definitely overtime and underpaid. She worked at the tombs, and there was also a place nearby called Blackwell's Island Asylum, which will actually unexpectedly show up in next week's episode. Looking forward to, I'm really looking forward to next week's episode. But they, the, both of those places, because they housed female inmates, were granted permission to have a handful of female patrons, or matrons in this case, to watch over the female prisoners. And this actually started in 1845 and would be the first time in American history that female prisoners would be able to be looked at, looked after by other females. Which I think is a good idea. That's always a better idea. Especially back in those times. Well, at any time. I yeah, I'm saying especially back in those times. Yeah. That's just like extra smart. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, five years before her appointment to the tombs, there was an unfortunate, well known assault on a female prisoner that took place in eighteen ninety one. And that same year, the New York police commissioner, Theodore Roosevelt, expanded the matron's duties to not only deal with the female inmates and clean the cells, they also had their duties to include uh, victims of assault, sex crimes, and anything involving children. So they had to take on more responsibility, but they were given the responsibility of looking after people who generally weren't able to be able to look after themselves and have some kind of safety. And it's Theodore Roosevelt, so he's pretty, pretty progressive for the time, I will say that. According to one of my main sources, Isabella Goodwin had a common look to her, and she stood at about five feet, one inch. And the quote from the article read, One contemporary newspaper account described her as having a kind, motherly face. Her dark hair is not yet streaked with gray. Her gray eyes are full of expression and sympathy. A broad forehead denotes intelligence, and her whole manner would lead one to take her for a married woman of the well-to-do class. I'm assuming I'm going to take that description as meaning that she's kind of unassuming and very kind and motherly. Well, I mean, she does have four kids. I would be a motherly person if I had four kids. And I, I don't have care. kids, and I'm still a motherly type of person. Exactly. I know that. Believe me, do I know that. <laughs> I'm motherly around kids, too. I mean, he, my boyfriend's nephews have come over, and I've won them over in less than eight hours. They fell in love with me. <laughs> because I'm a very protective person, and I am that way with kids, too. I am that way with my own nieces and nephews. I am that way with my boyfriend's nephews. I am that way with my friend's kids. I love little kids, as long as I can give them back at the end of the day. (laughs) But I am a very motherly, protective person when it comes to having them. I will not let anyone bully them. That's not okay. So I can understand where a woman who has four children and is the sole parent is going to be a motherly person. Well, that wasn't really what they were referring to. I mean, I agree with that point, but that's not what they were referring to, is that she 
gave off like a motherly attitude, not a protective attitude. She probably was too, but that she's a small, probably petite woman, very kind, very sympathetic, and has a very good grace and poise to her. Wait, you have to be sympathetic and motherly? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, they usually go hand in hand. Well, no, like little, <laughs> like one of one of the nephews hit his head. One of my boyfriend's nephews hit his head when he was having his sleep over here. And the poor little thing, I felt so bad. He was hurting, and I was like, oh. Yeah. Let me... And I cuddled with him. Like, let him cry. Yeah. Well, what I meant... So she's got, I'm assuming, kind of kind look. Yeah, she's got and a motherly... She is sympathetic and wants to understand. Yes, but the point of me mentioning that wasn't so much because she's a mom. It plays later in her story. Oh, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it stays with her throughout life. No, you'll get, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Okay. I, it wasn't why. I wasn't bringing up just as a description. I mean, it plays into her story. And in that sense, so much like Wilhelmina Fleming, there's more to Isabella Goodwin than just met the eye. Behind those great kind eyes of hers was a brain made for the police department. So while she's uh, on her tenure as a police matron, giving her apparent kind and unassuming looks, the police, after a time that she'd been working there, determined that she would be a really good fit as an undercover agent. That's where I was going with that. Sounds like fun. <laughs> she would go undercover, go in disguise, and would help the police department solve numbers of cases, typically involving con artists, so fortune tellers, astrologers, uh, fraudulent surgeons, quack doctors, anyone that was scamming people out of money. And at one point, she even helped them to raid a betting parlor by going in and posing as a degenerate gambler. And it's actually said that during her time with the police, she had helped to obtain evidence for over 500 con artists. Did you say 500? Yeah. That's a lot. That she, she really, really good skills as a disguise oh. artist and undercover agent. That's a lot. Well, I'll tell you this. She's frequently referred to as the female Sherlock Holmes. And I think that's rather quite fitting. But that's not her claim to fame, just going up to go under uh, undisguised and and helping solve con artists. That's not her biggest claim to fame. So by 1912, she had been working as a police matron for 16 years. And on an early February morning, her life in the police department would take a major change. So at this time, the city was being kind of overrun by a lot of criminals. And one in particular were known as the Taxi Bandits. And this was a midday robbery. Yeah. A midday robbery where two bank clerks were assaulted and hijacked by unknown assailants who then made off with the money they had on them, which at the time in 1912 was $25,000, which would still be a lot today. 
but in today's currency, that would equal about $763,598, just over $7,500. Holy macaroni. Most of this actually comes from a book. Uh, that what I'm going to tell you next actually comes from a, a PDF book that I got on the Gutenberg.com. And it's called The Great Taxi Cab Robbery by James H. Collins. And I, it's not centered around Isabella as it is specifically centered around the assailants, the, the, the men involved all over. So the, the police commissioners, the detectives, perpetrators, the attack, the, the people who were attacked. Um, Isabella makes a mention in there, but it's not really about her specifically, but it is a very good descriptive detail about the, the robbery, the case, the eyewitnesses, the trials, the sentencings, and everything is actually, it's pretty good reading. You can, it's, you can read it for free online. I re recommend looking that one up. So according to the book, on the morning of February 15th, two messengers from the East River National Bank were sent to withdraw $25,000 from the Produce Exchange National Bank and bring it uptown. Apparently, this particular type of transfer happened several times a week between the banks and had been going on for so long, neither of them really deemed necessary for either bank to have a guard accompanying the bank messengers because nothing ever happened. Despite $25,000 being an incredible amount of money back then, no guards. Around 11 a.m., two men got into a cab, and according to the book, the cab they got into was a cab that they were familiar with. The cab driver was known to be one of their regular chauffeurs from bank to bank. And they would get in his cab specifically and they would drive back and forth throughout the week when we did all these money transfers. So they were familiar with him and they trusted him. So it wasn't just a random taxi cab. This was, all of it was actually planned out and you get more information in the book. And I again, recommend looking it up. So around 11 a.m., Five men surrounded this taxi cab as it was on its way uptown. And according to reports, a sixth man, unknown, pretended to stumble in front of the car to slow it down. As soon as possible, as soon as the taxi cab slowed down enough, two of the five men entered the back seats and beat the bank men until they were unconscious. And at the same time, a third entered the front and pointed his gun at the driver, telling him to drive as fast as possible or he'd be shot. Now you're wondering about the two men on the outside. So again, there's five. So now there's three in the car and you've got two men literally running on either side of the car as it's going to where it's going to be their destination for the getaway. The reason that you had five men instead of just the three was that this was a long time planned out uh, robbery. The two men on the outside of the car were there to make sure that the two men in the back seat didn't balk and that they would be in there to do what they needed to get done. 
So after driving frantically at about 11 blocks, the driver was told to stop. The three men grabbed all the money they could, quickly got out of the car, and then ran over to a nearby black car with no license plates. That car then quickly drove off. The event happened so quickly that neither the driver nor the bank men, particularly the bank men because they were unconscious, could identify the attackers. Those who had seen the crime happen gave evidence, but their witness testimony was uncorroborated, so it, it didn't mesh up. So obviously, they didn't have much to go on. Now, when the case hit the police department, they assigned 60 detectives to the case. That's a lot of detectives. That's a ton. Yeah, I've never heard of a case with 60 detectives assigned to it. That's a shocking number of detectives. I mean, it's, it's a it's a high-profile crime. But yes, but... Like, 60 it's, seems a little excessive. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Now, it, it's a high-profile crime, but it did make national news. And this also put a strain on the police department to try to solve it even more. And they had almost no leads to go on. In addition, at this time, the police force also didn't have police cars. They hadn't started incorporating them yet. Cars were still a little expensive. And this actually made it very difficult to just generally catch robbers, but particularly these, these robbers, because they didn't have a car. And the robbers hijacked and got a getaway car, so they got off real fast, and the police couldn't catch up. That particular type of crime was also increasingly on the rise at the time. Again, because the robbers could hijack a car, get a getaway car, and the police were pretty much either chasing them on foot or chasing them on horses. So the sheriff's office, because of lack of cars on the force, according to the book, also had begun considering arming civilians to try to encourage them to help fight this wave of crime going through. It didn't actually happen. He was considering it. And I don't think that would have turned out very well. So although the police had very little to go on and almost no leads in the case, and they were consistently back and forth, um, interviewing the cab driver who did have a role in it, but I won't give that away. They did suspect that this and some other series of burglaries were headed by a criminal named Eddie the Boob Kinsman, who frequently just went by Eddie the Boob, which I think is an unusual criminal name. Why the boob? I don't know. It, it, it probably would have been something in reference to some sort of slang at the time. Okay. Not sure. But there was no hard evidence that Kinsman was actually involved. It was speculation because it kind of had a sort of signature on it, but there was no hard evidence. But the police knew that he was in on a crime ring. And they were able to find out that there was a specific boarding house where he, his mistress, known as Swede Annie Hull, and his cronies would kind of meet at the boarding house. So they had some rooms there. They'd hang out there. They'd plan their crimes there. 
In either case, whether Eddie the Boo was involved in this, this specific one with the taxi cab bandits or not, they still wanted to get him anyway because he was a, a criminal. So they couldn't just go into the boarding house, though, and just confiscate or arrest anyone. They didn't have any specific evidence. So they had to come up with a plan. And what do you think their plan was? Did they did they tail him and try and get hard evidence? Well, yes, and that's not where I was going with this whole story. But yes, they did. They did tail him. He was known to have some family in Massachusetts, and they did tail him. But they couldn't. He was hiding out with his family, and Annie was out spending money. So they needed somebody to get enough evidence on the people involved in the robbery in order to have enough evidence to serve a warrant to get their arrest. Their plan was to plant someone on the inside in the boarding house, converse with the people who lived there, gather evidence, and go completely undetected. Let me guess. It was, it yes. was a lovely, lovely lady. Yes. And she did, and I'm assuming that she did a darn good job. Oh, yeah. So, so obviously, Eddie the boob must have gone to jail. I'm sorry. I can't, Eddie the boob. I've been trying to give a straight face this whole time, and I can't. I mean, and it's 1912. I wouldn't expect anyone to have like a, a nickname like the boob until the 20s or something. <laughs> it just seems like a very 20s kind of slang insult. It's also like, where did you get Eddie the boob? Well, my understanding from the time, or it may have been from the 40s, I'm not sure, but the boob, if you called somebody, like at one point, calling somebody a boob was an insult. Yes. And it was calling them stupid. Yes, that that's true. So I don't know. Maybe Eddie was stupid. I mean, if you're stupid, how do you successfully run a criminal ring? I didn't say he ran the ring. I just said that he was part of a ring. Oh, okay. He's not Moriarty. There is no Moriarty like uh, Moriarty. Um, um, no one like Moriarty. No, no, no. Excuse me. Um, stay tuned for anyone who wants to hear about Moriarty for the next weird history. I will blow your mind with that. I'm all in, but by the way, there's no one like Moriarty in the real world. Let's just let's just fucking you, face. No, that. there is. You've never heard of him. I told you to read the book about him, but you haven't gotten around to it yet. Listen, I don't think you understand. I'm staring at all the books that I've taken out of my boxes. You don't have the Where's book. The I have the book. It's my book. I've had it for years. Yes, I know. Do you know how many books of of them I have read so far? Yes, there's a ton just sitting there waiting for me to read them. Let me grab it real quick. Can't find it at the moment. But stay tuned for the next weird history. There is a real life Moriarty. I guarantee you. Anywho, so back to Isabella Goodwin. So obviously she had a reputation for being an undercover agent and being very good at an undercover agent. and. Obviously, having a very sympathetic dis uh, de demeanor, 
she was their first choice. Now, in addition to planting Goodwin, the fours also apparently secured an empty storefront across the street from the boarding house. And the best friend of Sweet Annie was a woman named Myrtle Hoyt who lived there and took care of Annie's stuff while she was out spending money. And anytime Myrtle left the boarding house, she was followed by plainclothes detectives. Now, for Goodwin, she prepped for the position as a scullery maid in the boarding house. And with the help of the PD, she took on a fake Irish accent, a ragged set of clothing, and kind of wormed her way in to the good graces of the landlady, who was very helpful with the police. And as a maid in the boarding house, her duties would include scrubbing the floors, cleaning all of the rooms, running errands for the lodgers, taking out the trash, cooking meals for all of the lodgers, and anything else that, as a maid, she was required to do. Now, she was still getting paid by the police department for her job as an undercover agent, but because she now has this technically second job, she was also getting paid too, but she's getting paid $6 a week, which is a small pittance. And in, in return for this pittance, she was able to live rent-free at the boarding house. And in a, I don't know if it was an interview or a, a memoir of, of type that she wrote later on, she said that her room was a dark, wretched little hole under the stairs. Reminds me of Harry Potter. Exactly. And according to Goodwin, she would wear an old kimono from home when she went to work at a boarding house. And she would, quote, watched the lodgers by day and fueled by coffee would wander the halls of the house at night standing outside doorways listening at keyholes and sneaking out in the wee hours to report back to the nypd she would also go out and visit shops around town that eddie would frequently visit and from this she learned from some shopkeepers that eddie was quote shedding money like a canary like a molting canary and it was one of, during one of these nightly sneaks back to the PD on the evening of February 20th that she had heard Annie, who had come back to the boarding house the night before, through a keyhole, tell her friend Myrtle Hoyt, well, Eddie the Booth turned the trickle, right? And that was a big moment in the case. So the, the, the robbery took place on the 15th, and by the 20th, they knew that they had Eddie in the back. So from her time as a matron, Goodwin knew that women down their luck often sought solace in the hired help. There's someone that they can talk to, but they're in a lower position. But, but there's something that's always around and isn't likely going to judge her. Maybe, but... A day or two after hearing Annie's revelation through the keyhole, Isabella noticed that Myrtle seemed pretty mad. And so she politely inquired what was wrong, being the scullery maid. She's like, what's wrong, honey? What's wrong? You know, and this was the big, big break she would need to crack the case. Myrtle, unsuspecting of Goodwin, spilled everything she knew to her. She shared with her that Eddie and Annie had gone upstate to a, conduct a shopping spree. And when Annie returned, she had 
flashy fancy new clothes and a load of money cash. Annie then told Myrtle that she and Eddie were going to move out that same night that she came back to grab her stuff and that they would be spending some time in a downtown hotel before fleeing off to California. As soon as Goodwin was able to slip away to the department, she spilled everything to the police officers. 11.30 on Monday the 25th, officers went to the Grand Central Station and nabbed both Eddie and Annie before they could purchase tickets to go out to the West Coast. Eddie was charged with highway robbery, assault, and attempted murder and would be sentenced for only three to six years. Seems really light. A lot of the other ones, uh, yeah, that's three to six years for attempted murder alone seems really light. Let alone highway robbery and assault. I don't know. Uh, there were seven other people that would be arrested in relation to this crime. And they would all be charged and sentenced for their role in the robbery. But three to six years was one of the lighter sentences. Uh, I'm not sure how that, that one is. Yeah. But keep in mind, when this case hit, just about 10 days prior. So if, if they went and nabbed Eddie and Annie on the 25th and the robbery took place 10 days before on the 15th, it made national news. People were wondering if the police department was going to be able to solve the case because nothing, they weren't making any leads as quickly as people think that they should be making leads, not realizing this stuff takes time. You know, there's a legal system we have to go through. And the newspapers were pointing out that the police department isn't doing anything. They had 60 detectives on the case, not including their undercover agents. It took them 10 days to crack the case. Pretty good timing for that. But out of everyone involved in the case, the one to crack it was Isabella. Without her help as the undercover agent to get into the good graces of Myrtle and Annie, they would not have cracked the case anywhere near as quickly. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, we've only just been praising her and her undercover work right now, so I'm not surprised that she's the one to crack it. No, but I don't think anyone would have, I don't think anyone at the time would have suspected that a female in the police department would have been the one to crack the case. But the morning after an Eddie and Annie's arrest, Goodwin gained even more of a reputation because she had a reputation, obviously, for being a really good undercover agent. And the morning after, everything made national news. But she was also finally gained a long overdue and deserved promotion. She made full detective. She was also made national headlines. Yeah. Oh, it gets better than that. that. She made national headlines for solving the case and the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, as soon as the case was solved, claimed that she was the best known woman sleuth in the U.S. Now, uh, the following, 
1912. So a little while after she became, she'd been full detective. So in 1921, the New York Herald actually wrote about her. There is many a six foot detective with a gun on his hip who does less valuable work for his $3,300 a year, which is an exceptional sum. Then Mrs. Goodwin, a slight, quick-moving little woman whose brain more than keeps pace with her body. Which is actually a really good compliment for the time. Now, she's not so much noted as just being a really good undercover female agent for the PD. When she was promoted to detective, she became the first female detective in New York. In 1912. And as I mentioned, yeah, yeah. And as I mentioned, she is often referred to as the female Sherlock Holmes. So she was promoted to first grade lieutenant in addition to becoming full detective and was given a substantial and probably very long overdue pay raise. Originally making $1,000 a year, she now received $2,250 a year. So more than double what she was making, still less than men, but a substantial more. I mean, where do you get a promotion and get your pay doubled? Yeah. Yeah. Even if you get a promotion nowadays, you might get an extra four or five dollars, depending on where you're working in your position, if you're lucky to get that big of a raise. And she went from a thousand dollars to over twenty two hundred dollars. That's a pretty significant pay raise. Yeah. 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 So that was in 1912, and by 1918, the police department would actually go on to hire six more women in the department as full police officers, issuing them handcuffs, a revolver, and a summons book. However, they were not allowed to wear uniforms, so I guess they were also undercover cops? Plainclothes cops? I don't know, women weren't allowed to wear uniforms in the New York Police Department for some time. I don't know why. It's a weird little tidbit, but Goodwin didn't just go on to be New York's first female detective. She still really had a great career with the police department and would go on to encourage more women to join the police department. By 1921, she helped to bring about the Women's Bureau of the New York Police Department, and this was actually a force of 26 female officers who were tasked with overseeing cases specifically involving prostitutes, truant children, runaways, domestic violence, and just children in general. So essentially it's matron duties, except outside of jails, but as a full police officer. Yeah, with a race. So that's got to help with four kids, dang. Yeah, but she she was able to, I mean, by, in, in just under 10 years, she yes. was able to encourage and gain 26 more female officers to the department and headed the department herself, like the, the Women's Bureau portion of it. Which I think is pretty cool. That same year in 1921, she met and married a man named Oscar Seaholm, who was apparently a very handsome singer. And he was also 30 years younger than she was. In 1921, she would have been in her 50s. Go her! I think she was about 55 or something. Like along those lines. Math is not my strong suit. They would remain until her death over 20 years later. So it was a good match. And in 1924, she took on another high-profile case. 
uh, under being undercover and help because again, going back to where when she was a matron, most of her undercover work also involved catching and arresting uh, con artists. So in 1924, she took on that some more and was able to secure the arrest of several doctors engaging in fraudulent practices and got more notoriety for her undercover work at that point as well. But that would be her last case. Why so? She retired. Go her! <laughs> yeah, she's like, I've, I've been on the force for close to 30 years, 28 years specifically, 1896 to 1924 28 years which i think is about an average length for a, for a police officer 30 years yeah, on but think of it back then the first female officer in new york and geez i think that's really good yeah Go her and good for her like i said she had a brain for the police department she she seemed to really enjoy what she did and really excelled in it and when she was asked about her years in the, the police department, she replied with, oh, the things I have learned about poor, weak human nature, my experiences would fill a book, which I wish she would have written one. There is a book though, called The Fearless Mrs. Goodwin, How New York's First Female Detective Cracked the Crime of the Century and is written by Elizabeth Mitchell. And as I mentioned before at the top, when we were talking about the taxi cab robbery, there is also from Gutenberg.org for free. You can read The Great Taxi Cab Robbery by James Collins. And as I mentioned, it's an account about Goodwin, the police department, and Eddie the Boob, as well as the others who were involved in the robbery. And the book is actually from 1912. It's copyright 1912. And I definitely highly recommend it's not it's not a really large book. I think it's like it's a small account. It's not even, I don't even call it a book. Um, I don't know. It's probably around a hundred pages. If that, it's not very big, but it reads really well. There's a lot of pictures. So you have bases to go with people. It's really, really well written. And if you want to know more about the court cases and the people involved, and how the crime was planned out and everything, I definitely highly recommend looking at the Great Taxi Cab Robbery. And thanks to Goodwin and the Women's Bureau, the NYPD today has around 6,600 women on their police force. That does, sir, by today's percentage, is about 20% of their police force. Goodwin also said that women make very strong detectives because of their, quote, ability to sense things for which you first have no proof, or women's intuition. And if you want to check out other notable female detectives in U.S. history, uh, I don't know if there's enough to do a whole episode on them, but there's Deadshot Mary Shanley from the 1940s. She's got some really great uh, posterity pictures. They're really cool. And then there's Muggable Mary Glatzel, who was a police detective in the 1970s. And Isabella Goodwin, first female detective in New York City, would die of colon cancer, unfortunately, on, uh, in October of 1943 at the age of 78. And she's actually buried in Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery under the name Isabella Seaholm, the name of her second husband. And 
interestingly enough, if you look it up, I did say she was born in 1865. The tombstone actually reads 1871 to 18 or to 1943 instead of 1865. It's not certain as to why it says 1871 because from census reports and other evidence about her life, she was born in 1865. But something a little different. Like quite people. a life. Yeah. Quite a life. Well, I think next week's episode is going to be pretty interesting. <laughs> Do you remember which one we're doing? Uh, Bly. Yeah. Who went undercover at Blackwell's Asylum. All right. So I think we should end this episode, don't you? Yeah, I don't have anything else. I just thought it was a really interesting topic. It probably be a little short this week, but something interesting, weird, fascinating. But if you want weird and fascinating and you want some Moriarty, wait for two more weeks. That one is a story I've been wanting to tell for a long time. Ooh, I'm excited. Yes. But that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. And we hope to see you next week as we check through history to explain it all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.